You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, church, I'd invite you to open up your Bible together with me to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 to verse 6. Throughout Colossians, we've been learning about the supremacy of Christ over all things and the sufficiency of Christ in all things. And chapter 3 invited us to uh, be able to live here on earth in light of the authority of Christ in heaven. And proceeding into Colossians 4, we're now learning how we can do this with the relationships that we are involved in, those inside the church. And today, We'll learn about how we can live this way with those outside of the church. I usually take the bus uh, to work one or two days a week. My wife and I live kind of close to Highway 7, so we can take the convenient purple line, and we like having one car. It's pretty simple, and I try and be friendly when I'm around on the bus or out of the grocery store with neighbors. Um, but I've found a simple wave of the hand or hello or a smile to strangers on a bus can kind of be received in a way that it looks like I'm speaking a foreign language. Basic friendliness comes, seems kind of foreign today. There's actually a significant amount of data that suggests that our culture is becoming increasingly more individualistic and increasingly more isolated, and as a result, increasingly more hopeless. Quebec philosopher Charles Taylor, who's respected around the world, wrote a book called Our Secular Age, in which he tracks the shift in Western civilization from being a culture that was predominantly Christian in its view of the world to becoming predominantly secular in its view of the world. He tracked the shifts from about 1500 to now, and one of the results that he found from that shift is that our individual sense of self has become significantly disconnected from the world around us when it was once very connected to the world around us. In generations past, individuals viewed their sense of self as so connected to their community, like strands of spaghetti are connected in pasta. Sure, there are individual strands of spaghetti. When you look at it and you take a bite it, you're more really looking at the whole rather than the part. Uh, today, we're less like that and more like eggs in a carton. There are usually a dozen eggs in a carton. And sure, there are multiple eggs in one carton, but there's a very clearly defined section from each egg that's cushioned from the other eggs so that they never come in contact with each other. It's kind of the way we view ourselves today. We're becoming increasingly individualistic, and we're becoming increasingly isolated. Internationally known blogger and internationally best-selling author Mark Manson uh, wrote a book, and the subtitle of that book is A Book About Hope. And in the introduction of that book, he expresses how even though we're becoming more and more of a prosperous society, we are becoming more and more of a hopeless society. He shares statistics from widely available data that suggest that... Um, 
human beings, uh, 50% of us, generally say they are currently living lonely lives. Uh, On the past eight years in North America, anxiety and depression have been on an incline. Uh, Opioid use and overdoses are at an all-time high. Personal satisfaction in life are at an all-time low. And it's within this context that we live that the church is called to make meaningful relationships with our unchurched neighbors. This is what today's message is about. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 to 6, is going to teach us two necessary activities for us, the church, to be able to build meaningful relationships with our unchurched neighbors. So as we do, would you stand with me to honor God as we read his word together? Colossians chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 2 to verse 6. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of, your, of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You can take your seats, church. The church is called to make meaningful relationships with our unchurched neighbors. Colossians 4 verse 2 to 6 explains two necessary activities in order to do this. So what are these activities? Well, first, God's word teaches us that building meaningful relationships means being devoted to the work of prayer. Paul's instruction in verse 2 to continue steadfastly in prayer is a non-negotiable command given from God. The command to be steadfast in prayer is a command to be persistently committed to prayer. I would say to be devoted to prayer. And you might already be thinking, what does prayer have to do with building meaningful relationships with my unchurched neighbors? Well, we'll see the connection shortly, but first, We need to understand the three aspects of devoted prayer that Paul describes in this passage. What does devoted prayer look like? Well, first, it's this. Look at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Devoted prayer is watchful prayer. Think of the type of alertness and activity That's needed if you are the type of person that works the night shift. Maybe you're a security guard. The past eight months might have had no disturbances in your shift. But that doesn't mean that tonight you can be off guard and not alert and not active. Because tonight could be the night where the thief tries to come in and steal. Imagine a nurse working the ER unit. Last night might not have been busy. But does that mean that she can be alert or not alert or not active that next night? What if on the next night when she's not paying attention, 
many paramedic trucks come up because there was an eight-car pileup wreck right around the corner. You might have been able to sleep the whole way home through your red-eye flight back from New York City, but your pilot certainly can't. Devoted prayer, that is watchful prayer, is active and alert because it knows the urgency of its circumstances. The night when Jesus was betrayed and sent to be executed, he went out to a garden with his three closest friends so that he could be alone to pray with the Father. And while he was alone praying, he told Peter, James, and John, watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. And he came back, and in what state did he find them? He found them sleeping. And Jesus said, can you not even watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So what's the urgency for us for prayer? The urgency of Christ was that his death was at hand. His life would be required from him. What's the urgency for us to pray? Jesus is coming back soon. And the eternal destiny of every human soul is at stake. Are we a praying people? Is your marriage a praying marriage? Are our small groups praying small groups? Are we a watchful, praying church? I know of no other greater motivation to enable us to pray watchfully than the imminent promise of the return of Jesus Christ. Does that motivate you to pray? Devoted prayer is not only watchful prayer, devoted prayer is also thankful prayer. Verse 2 continues to say, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Thankfulness is a theme that is thread throughout the entire book of Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that he gives thanks for the Colossians when he prays for them. Chapter 1, verse 12, Paul prays that they would give thanks for the fact of their salvation. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, Paul commands that the Colossians walk in Christ in a manner that is abounding with thanksgiving. Chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says that they should be thankful knowing that they have died to their old self and have put on the new self raised with Christ. Thankfulness is a grateful attitude towards God no matter what the circumstances. Do you live your life like that? Does that describe your prayer life? And prayer, excuse me, thankfulness matters in prayer because when thankfulness is absent in prayer, we turn prayer into some form of cheap spiritual transaction. And we approach God in the same way that you might approach an ATM or a vending machine or a fast food drive-thru. Excuse me, I asked for plum sauce, not barbecue sauce. You better do something about this. God, I've been praying for a new job. Why am I still in this one? When we neglect the thankful heart, we 
might know in mind, but we forget in heart the reality that the one that we are approaching is an unseen person, yet the only person who is omnipotent creator of the universe, gracious savior of our souls, and loving father. And approaching God with thanksgiving allows us to share in the joy of worshiping such a God like this. So you see, we human beings always find joy in what we attribute excellence to. The reason you talk about that artist that you like is you believe they're the best at what they do. The reason you talk about that sports team that you like is because you enjoy the, the, the best of the, what they do. The reason you get so despairing when the Jays aren't doing well but have a little bit of hope because they have a couple good young players is because you want them to do the best that they can do so that you can get, be happy when they excel. We get joy out of celebrating excellent things. There is no more excellent one than the Lord. And when we are thankful to God for who he is and all that he's done for us, we share in the joy of the blessing of who God is. Devoted prayer is watchful prayer. It's thankful prayer. And then thirdly, devoted prayer is what I would call missional prayer. Look at verse three. It says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us to, uh, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. By saying, pray also for me, Paul expects that this watchful, thankful prayer is a regular habit in the lives of this church. And all he's saying is, hey, as you're praying this way, add me to your prayer list. Paul had a unique calling as an apostle. They lived in the city of Colossae, but Paul was traveling around from city to city telling more people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul traveled to Ephesus. Paul traveled to Philippi. Paul traveled to Athens. Paul wanted to travel to Rome. And he wanted them to join with him in the mission that God had called them to. So they weren't going to Ephesus, they were in Colossae. They weren't going to Athens, they were in Colossae. But even though they weren't in the town that Paul was going to, Paul knew that the only ability he had to be able to have meaningful relationships with, with people was, as he said, if God himself intervened and opened a door to the word. So even though they worked and lived and worshiped in Colossae, they could have as much effective gospel work in Colossae praying for Paul when he wanted to go to Rome. See, this is what prayer allows us to do. Prayer is partnering with others in their unique calling in the gospel. This is the connection that we see between prayer and building meaningful relationships with unchurched members. You might not be planting a church in North York, but you may have seen Marvin McCoody come preach here, who is planting a church in North York. You might not be planting a church in Timisoara, Romania, but a few weeks ago you met 
Addie Balta and his wife, Alex, who are planting a church in Timishwara. You might not work at the Markham Stovall Crisis Pregnancy Center. You might not go downtown with the team going on the sandwich run who gives out care packages to homeless people. You might not be distributing food at 105 Gibson Center, but you can join in that work and have divine spiritual effect in your, the quiet of your closet, praying for the people who are fulfilling their unique calling out in the streets. Are we a praying people? I believe that if we pray this way, we can see the gospel move in power like a wildfire and a raging flood, like the gospel moved in power and turned the world upside down in the first century. In the book of Acts, it shows us that the church was devoted to prayer. Acts 1.14 says, And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. In the book of Acts, you see prayer happening on, at large group public gatherings, in small groups at homes, individually in solitude. Are we praying that way? Are we praying these types of prayers? Are we praying at these different scales of prayer? I want to be obedient and devoted to the non-negotiable command to participate in the work of prayer. But it's hard work. And I know what holds me back. Maybe you do too. Three things primarily hold me back from praying in the way that I know God wants me to. Pride. Pride holds me back from the non-negotiable command to pray. Pride makes me think that the work I'm doing is great and I don't need to ask God to intervene because I'm enough. Oswald Chambers says this, prayer does not equip us for greater works, Prayer is the greater work. Entertainment. Entertainment holds me back. Not necessarily watching or listening to bad things, but just watching and listening to things that distract me from prayer and from being watchful. John Piper, pastor and writer, said this. One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Apathy. Apathy holds me back. Yeah, so I hear that there are high overdoses in an opioid crisis. Yeah, so I know that young men are being disenfranchised from their neglectful fathers and being recruited into gangs. Yeah, I know that my neighbor who lives right across the street from me doesn't know Jesus, but I don't know, it's kind of easy to be that cushioned egg in the carton that's really just cordoned off from other people. Leonard Ravenhill said this. The quote is on the screen. Look at it with me. Do you want to live a successful Christian life? Let's start here. Leonard Ravenhill says the two prerequisites to successful Christian living are vision and passion. 
Vision, the ability to see what God sees. Passion, the drive to go where God wants us to go. Both of which are born in and maintained by prayer. The ministry of preaching is open to few. The ministry of prayer, the highest ministry of all human offices, is open to all. You may have more effect than I ever could on a platform in your closet before the Lord, and no one sees what you do. May I remember that. May we not be apathetic, distracted, prideful people. God, help me. What holds you back from a life of watchful, thankful, missional prayer? Church, God wants to use you. God isn't looking for impressive theologians who know the eloquent words to say to impress him in prayer. God isn't looking for that. God is looking for those with the heart of a little child who reach up to their able father because they know their inability. Is that you? The right heart for prayer must also be met with disciplined time in prayer. So I ask you, what would have to change in your life so that your prayer habits had the time and the heart so that you could truly say that you are devoted to prayer? I know what that means for me. It means I need to wake up earlier. I know that it means that I need to be regularly praying unceasingly throughout the day. I know that it means I need to stop and pray before meals more frequently. I know that it means that me and my wife, before we sit down to watch something or before we go and do chores, after the kids go down, need to stop first and pray and read God's word together. Aspirations do not equal obedience. Let's be more than dreamers, let's be doers. It's not enough to just dream of seeing the blessing of revival. We must do the work that God blesses, and God blesses the work of prayer. Through devotion to watchful and thankful prayer that intentionally prays for others, like church planters, long-term missionaries, and short-term missionaries, we can partner in building meaningful relationships for the sake of the gospel. You may not be out there on the field, but in your closet in solitude, you can have just as much of an effect. Building meaningful relationships means being devoted to the work of prayer. But you know, there is a field that God has called us to labor in. There are people in our town, in our neighborhood, in our communities and workplaces and schools where we can be witnesses. Not only does building meaningful relationships mean being devoted to the work of prayer, but it also means being discerning with the words that we speak. While Paul, Paul was asking for open doors for gospel opportunities in other towns, he told the Colossians that they should be looking for the same opportunities in their town. Look at verse 5 and verse 6 with me. It says this, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How does this happen? How 
can we walk with wisdom towards outsiders? Outsiders meaning people who are not inside the family of faith. That's why I've been using the term unchurched neighbors. The rest of the verse describes what this wisdom looks like. First, it means making the best use of the time to take any opportunity in any discussion with any person to share Christ. How often do you use coupons to buy groceries? My wife and I, by God's grace, were recently able to buy our first home, and now with a mortgage and payment coming coming out every month, coupons might be a little more frequently used in my household. And someone recently told me about this app that uh, is able to geolocate where you are and then gather all of the uh, relevant flyers from local grocery stores so I can, on my phone, instead of with that, like, newspapery material that gets my hands all dirty with that ink, I can just digitally zoom in and circle on it, and then it clips it, and I can just do it on my phone. I think I might do that more often. But I don't think I could be rabid about couponing like some families have been rabid about couponing. There was a show on TV a couple years ago, maybe you remember it, and it was called Extreme Couponing. It turned the mundane activity of grocery shopping into a competitive, almost body contact sport where people would gather as many coupons as they can to be able to get a bill that on face value looked like it was insurmountably unspendable and then somehow with coupons spend as little as humanly possible so that mom might come home one day with a three-year supply of Pop-Tarts that she spent $3.18 for. Wow. Making the most use of every penny. Doesn't matter that you, I mean, you'll probably survive through the apocalypse with that amount of Pop-Tarts. And you might have to vacate your kids out of their home, out of their rooms to be able to store them. But who, you made the most of every penny. But that's kind of what it's like to make the most of the time. Not that we're being aggressive with our neighbors, Because look at the rest of the text says, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. Always be gracious. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer, you ought to answer each person. Started trying to lose weight and eat healthy two years ago, and I recognized if I was going to do that, I needed to cook my own food. And watching uh, chefs and cooks on YouTube, I've learned that you really need to appropriately learn what the right amount of seasoning is for the different meats that you cook. Salt is a seasoning, when used, helps allow the natural flavor of the food to come out when it's cooked. But if you went to a restaurant with your family and your kids ordered the fries, and you ordered the salmon, and the salmon came seasoned with the same amount of salt that they also use at McDonald's for the fries. The fries would take great, taste great. The salmon's getting sent back. It, that's not palatable. That's, I, can't, I can't eat that. And that's what it's like to be discerning with your words. Taking 
every, making the most of our time means taking every opportunity. Being gracious and seasoning your words with salt means being discerning to use your words appropriately given the context. Appropriately according to the discussion and appropriately according to the person. I truly believe that the flavor of the gospel can come out in any conversation with any person. Did you know over the long weekend in Toronto that there were 17 acts of gun violence? And now there's a lot of discussion about what reforms need to be made. That, if you had a conversation with your neighbor or a coworker about that, that could be an opportunity for the gospel. But let's say you were speaking with a young adult male who was a newcomer to Canada who recently immigrated with refugee status from a country that was torn apart by war and now lives in community housing. You would need to season your words differently in the conversation with that person as with having the same conversation with a middle-aged mom with kids in elementary school who has an expendable monthly income so they can go to hot yoga each week. That might seem like a hard task, but it's really not. Why don't we do what James chapter 1 says? Be quick to listen and slow to speak. When we are quick to listen to our neighbors and slow to speak, asking questions to understand their heart and their perspective in the circumstances, then we can respond in the way that Paul responded and wanted, said he ought to respond. Clearly, but also boldly, as it says in the book of Ephesians. And we can respond in the same way that 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 tells us to respond. Gently and respectfully. That's wise evangelism. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Listening to the heart motive of the other person. And then allowing the natural flavor of the gospel to come out as I respond clearly, boldly, gently, and respectfully. Do you have these type of conversations with your neighbors? Could you have these types of conversations when you're on the train downtown? Could you have these type of conversations with your neighbor who, or your family member who's skeptical about religion or with your classmate who you're going to share two classes with this fall at school? I think we can be better equipped to evangelize with wisdom by putting to practice these three things. I want to give you three practical things that you can do to be able to be wise in evangelism. Here's the first one. Limit the energy you put into having persuasive conversations online. Because rarely are they fruitful. And regularly does it just raise your blood pressure for no reason. Generally, online conversations don't invite thoughtful discussion. It invites emotional reaction. Generally, online conversations don't consider the experience of the individual we're talking to. It only makes them into an argument to be won rather than a neighbor to be loved. Generally, conversations online completely lose the ability to speak gently and respectfully because so much of gentleness 
and respect requires the non-verbal forms of communication like body language and tone. That is just lost when you're typing in front of a keyboard. I'm not saying don't have conversations like this. It just, just limits the energy you put into it. Here's the second thing that we can do to be engaged in wise evangelism. Make it a point to be a good neighbor to those people you see most often. Who's that individual, that stranger, that unchurched person that you do see more often that you could have conversations like this with? Is it a family member? Is it another parent who you see drop their kids off at school? Is it another classmate that you share the same class with? Is it a family member that you see at regular holidays? I've done street preaching before. I've been a guy on a soapbox preaching the gospel in a downtown core once. I've done street evangelism walking up to strangers and starting random conversations with them. If you're not scared of how strangers respond to you, it's not too hard. It's not really risky to do that because you're never going to see those people again, most likely. You know what is risky? You know what is fearful? Speaking with a person who you know could put the relationship in jeopardy when the relationship matters. But what's really at risk when we share the gospel? Is, is it our comfort? Is it being awkward? Is it the relationship? No, what's really at risk is the eternal destiny of their soul. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Lord tells us that he desires people to come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. He desires that none would perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. And he is, as the Father sent Christ into the world, so Jesus says, I am sending you. While prayer is partnering with others in their unique calling, evangelism is our opportunity to participate individually in our common calling. God's not looking for impressively eloquent theologians to pray. He's not looking for world-renowned preachers to share the gospel. He's looking for those with the heart of a little child who know the love they receive from their father and want to share that love with others themselves. Because this is what the gospel affords to our neighbors, the hope that they're thirsty for and the love that they're craving. And if you have it, you can give it. And if you're here today and you have not repented of your sin, turned from a life of living your own way, to turn to Jesus and believe in him, believing that he died on the cross for your sins. If you would believe on him today, you can know the forgiveness that comes from faith. You can know the hope that comes by the gospel. You can know the love that comes by being spiritually adopted by a loving father. You see, this is the third thing that will equip us to be able to share the gospel. We should limit our time online we should be a good neighbor to those we see regularly. And third, we will be better equipped to share the gospel when we better enjoy the blessings of the gospel. 
Christian, do you feel like you're living with a sense of hope today? Do you feel like the joy of the Lord is your strength today? Do you feel like peace is keeping your mind still and tranquil today? Maybe the reason you don't have hope or don't have joy or don't have peace and maybe the reason these feel far away is because you know you haven't been near to God. And I'm not surprised that you're fearful of evangelism if you're living this way. I'm not f- surprised that it feels like a strain to tell people like G- about Jesus when you're not living this way. Often it can feel like a strain or can feel like a monumental task to tell people about the good news of Jesus because we ourselves aren't enjoying the goodness of Jesus. I found this to be true whether whoever we're with or wherever we are, we will always boast in what we value most. I really believe that the natural flavor of the gospel can come up in any conversation, but maybe you find that whoever you're talking with, you just want to talk about your favorite celebrity. Maybe it's with your dog or your classmate or your coworker or your boss. You just want to talk about the last thing that Trump tweeted. See, we allow the things that we love and that give us joy and blessing to be the thing that we talk about most. And in a sense, you're evangelizing. The news you're sharing, though, isn't the good news that they need. Listen to the Apostle Paul's motivation for sharing the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 to 23, the Apostle Paul says this, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you know the blessing of your guilt being forgiven? Do you know the blessing of your shame being covered? Do you know the blessing of your joy being complete, of your hope being secure, of your mind being filled with peace? The more we share in the blessing of the gospel, the more we will want to have others share in its blessings. We will always boast in what we value most. And our world needs this. Hopelessness, the tide of hopelessness is rising way faster than we might think the level of the ocean is rising. And we will drown in it if the gospel is not proclaimed and if the church is not praying. But as the message of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit spread through the known world in the first century, so it can in our town again. When we are devoted to the work of prayer and when we are discerning with the words that we speak, the church is called. That doesn't mean the pastor. That doesn't mean the staff. That doesn't mean the small group leader. It means you. It means me. The church is called to build meaningful relationships with its unchurched neighbors for the sake of the gospel. So let's be a people that are devoted to prayer, that are discerning with our words. God isn't looking for eloquent theologians or world-renowned preachers. He's looking for those with the humble heart of a little child who know their father is able 
and who want others to share in their father's love. So what I want to do now to close our time before communion is uh, as your pastor to model the type of prayer we're told to pray. And I want to invite you to pray with me. And in prayer, I would invite you even to have the courage where you are to put your body in the position that your heart is. Maybe you're feeling humbled and weak before God and you want to kneel before him. I would invite you in your seat or in the aisle to do that. Maybe you want to demonstrate your dependency to God, so you want to do what 1 Timothy chapter 2 says and lift up holy hands in prayer. Maybe you just need to bow your head in, in humility, knowing that you've been proud and you haven't been praying and you want to show your contrition before God. But I want you, however you put your body, to join your heart together with me as I will pray for us now in a way that's watchful and thankful and missional. Would you join with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Father, thank you Thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. I am so glad, Lord, that I am surrounded by people who are attentive to your word and hungry to hear from it and desiring to do it. I'm so humbled to know that I am submitted unto this word just like they are and I can be fearful to share the gospel just like they are too. But I thank you, Lord God, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, whom Christ said will fill us with power since he's come upon us so that we will be your witnesses across the world. So God, I pray that you would enable us with your power, the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we know that Christ is coming soon. Forgive us, Lord, for cushioning ourselves from the people around us and like making this buffer zone where I just want to sit in my own part of the carton and you pick your part of the egg carton and we do our own thing. Forgive us, Lord God, for being like the Levite and the priest who, who went around the, Samar the, the person who was uh, beat by robbers. Make us into the good Samaritan who show mercy to their neighbors and stop and provide for their needs. Help us to do it knowing that you are coming back soon. Help us, as 1 Peter chapter 1 says, to set our hope fully on the grace that's going to be given to us when Jesus Christ comes back. Help us to establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus is at hand. Make us sober-minded and steadfast for the sake of our prayers, Lord God. Father, please give us a sense of urgency and fervency like Jesus had, as it says in Hebrews chapter uh, 2, that in the days of his flesh, Jesus lifted up prayers to the Father with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his reverence. Lord God, would we have a sense of urgency and fervency and reverence calling out to you because the circumstances are dire and the tide of hopelessness is rising, but we know that we have living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Lord God, motivate us to be praying people and open doors in Markham, God. 
open doors in Scarborough, open doors in Richmond Hill, open doors in Stovall, open doors for other Christians from other churches for more gospel opportunities that all would be making the most of our time and redeeming it so that we would speak in a wise way, clearly, boldly, gently, respectfully. Lord, would we have the courage this week, empowered by your Holy Spirit, to allow the natural flavor of the gospel to come out in any conversation with each individual person. Lord, grant to us courage as little children to be bold and clear and gentle and respectful. And Lord, would we hear next week reports of your church going out in weakness and in humility, but going out in the boldness of Christ. And would we hear reports of people hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. And the next time that we hold a baptism service next month, would it be filled with people who didn't even know this church existed now because these people amongst me went out sharing the good news of Christ. We are in need, but we thank you that you have the solution and the supply in the gospel. Help us. We are so weak and needy. Open doors and save souls. In Jesus' name, amen.